Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 62 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond, and I am a middle school music teacher, a Modern Classrooms implementer. This is my third year implementing, and I'm also a Modern Classrooms mentor. And today I'm really excited. We are going to be talking about Modern Classrooms in the context of performing arts classes. And I am really super pumped about this episode, and not only because it's been a little pet project of mine to get this topic covered on the podcast since like episode five. Also, because I'm joined by an incredible panel of performing arts teachers. And I've worked with all of them pretty closely as they were working through the Modern Classrooms Mentorship Program. Up first, we've got Karis Sloss, who is a middle school dance teacher at Plymouth Middle School in Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast, Karis. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. Up next, we're joined by Katherine Lewiston, who is a middle and high school drama teacher at the American International School of Abuja in Abuja, Nigeria. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. And finally, I'm joined by Sam Borboom, who is a middle school band teacher at Reedsville Middle School in North Carolina. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Zach. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting us on here. Absolutely. I I really couldn't be more excited about the topic and also this particular group of guests. So Catherine and Sam were both my mentees, so we've worked really closely. And I've also worked with Karis, but Karis, you were Tony Rose's mentee, right? I was. Yeah. So this is a a close podcast family that we've got here. (laughs) So before we get started, I want to let the three of you introduce yourselves. Catherine, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about what you teach and how you came to Modern Classrooms? Yeah, thanks. Um, my name is Catherine, and right now I'm in my third year teaching at the American International School of Abuja in Abuja, Nigeria. This is my eighth year teaching overall. I have been an international teacher my entire career. I teach drama at ISA here in Abuja, and before that, For five years, I taught choir and general music at Yangon International School in Yangon, Myanmar. And I'm currently completing my Master's of Arts in choir with a choral concentration from the University of St. Thomas. I came to the Modern Classrooms Project in the winter of 2019. And I think, you know, that year really at this point lives in infamy uh, because of the pandemic. And... I came to the Modern Classrooms Project. It really felt like the universe was giving me a gift because all of a sudden we were in this very strange uh, situation of, of teaching online and teaching at great geographic distances from a lot of our colleagues and students internationally. And so Modern Classrooms uh, gave me some of the tools that I needed to feel like I was still able to teach uh, instead of just talking to a lot of black boxes on Google Meets and on Zoom. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That year does live in infamy. That's a great way of putting it. All right. Well, Karis, tell us a little bit about what you teach and and how you came to Modern Classrooms. Yes, absolutely. My name is Karis, and I this is my third year teaching dance in the public school system. Before that, I had 20 years experience where I was 
an art teaching artist that would go into school and do different residency work with elementary, middle, or high school. And then a few years ago, I decided to go back and get my master's in curriculum instruction and got my teaching license in dance and theater. And now into my third year in the public school system. I first became aware of Modern Classroom, I believe it was the fall 2020. So after that first sort of period of distance learning, as we were gearing back for what is this next school year going to be, the district that I'm in is all in on Modern Classroom. So they actually brought it to us during teacher workshop week, did the free online course. We had different uh, professional development um, workshops kind of throughout the year and how to start bringing these practices into our classroom. And when the Summer Institute came up, I knew I wanted to sign up because I thought this was so cool and I love this way of teaching and bringing lessons and the self-paced and blended learning to my students, but I wasn't sure how it could work in my dance class and how I could bring some of these practices into my classroom. So I was thrilled to be able to take the Summer Institute and have that time and space and work with the mentors and other students and teachers to kind of put my classroom together. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's uh, a lot of performing arts teachers, and I've worked with many of them, have those same questions coming into modern classrooms. And that's that's why I've wanted to do this episode for so long, and we're going to really get into that uh, shortly. But of course, we need to let Sam introduce himself first. So Sam, tell us about your uh, your teaching experience and how you came to modern classrooms. Thanks, Zach. Hi, everybody. Um, as you probably already figured out, we all have roots from Minnesota, where I first taught band. <laughs> this is my eighth year of teaching band. And the first five years I taught in southern Minnesota, in Waseca, just south of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I'm in my third year teaching here in Reedsville, North Carolina, where I teach middle school band students. We have a really unique challenge here in North Carolina where we don't have weekly pull-out small group or individual music lessons that we had in Minnesota. And so when I was introduced to Modern Classrooms in 2020, I thought this could be a really great um, entryway into small group instruction and getting that instrument-specific instruction back to my band students. So this has been a really unique challenge for me to to start this up with my students, and it's been really rewarding, and I'm really excited to share the things we've learned so far. Yeah, you know, I, I'm really excited about, I keep saying this, I'm, I'm really happy with this with this group of guests, but I like that we're representing so many different performing arts, too. You know, I teach music, but I don't teach performing music in the sense that I think most people think of, or like Sam does, I teach more something more like general music or songwriting. And so um, I'm here to learn actually as much as the listeners are. And the, the structures of our classes are, of, of your classes are, are different, right? Like a music class is very different from a dance and theater class. And so I'm glad that we're going to get to sort of come together. And I think that non-performing arts teachers will also be able to get some, some nuggets of wisdom out of this too, I, I hope. So let's start off talking about that that sort of unique structure of our classes. Um, I think that we incorporate activities that a lot of other subjects don't. I'm thinking of things like rehearsals. Um, Sam, you were mentioning like pull out one-on-one -on -one individual lessons as a part of the actual class. And of course, we have actual performances that we work towards and then we put on. And so I'd like to start off uh, just to get a sense of where we're all coming from hearing about how you structure your class. Like, what is it like to be in your class? What is it like to, to see your class happening? How is your class on a day-to-day -day basis generally and also specifically as a modern classroom? 
So for myself, the way that I structure my class is looking for different periods of time of where it's very movement heavy, and then times where there's more kind of discussion, and then times for rehearsal and performance. As I learned sort of that first year of coming into middle school, for a lot of my students, seeing dance on your schedule as a middle school student can feel like a very frightening thing. <laughs> So finding that open door to kind of come in and get used to moving together, um, I didn't want the whole class to be like, we're just dancing the whole time. So typically a class will start off with us all on our feet and kind of having that community movement with me leading, teaching choreography, us doing a warm up, working on a dance, learning new steps and so on. And then we'll get into more of our concept or unit work and with that, if it's a choreography project, there will be rehearsals and that would lead us into rehearsals. Um, so that flow works really nice. And that rehearsal time is nice because then that gives me an opportunity to go around the room and see how students are doing with the material, answer their questions, give them some feedback. And then I can also lead them to, you know, these two groups, you both are here, how about you perform for each other and give feedback or kind of work together. So, you know, it's definitely a noisy space once we are into rehearsals and all of that as I'm wandering around the room, but it gives me that great hands-on time uh, to work individually with the students. And that's what kind of led me into the modern classroom where at first, I was struggling of how are they going to learn movement off of a video when they're attached to a headphone. And then it worked for me where I was like, okay, I don't want to lose that all of us on our feet learning movement together because that's such a huge aspect of dance and that we talk right. about how dance is in our communities and we share that space with each other and we move with each other. So I didn't want to lose that. And then I was like, I don't need to. We will start class like that. And then when we get more into the specific objectives or lessons or other standards, those will be more with the self-paced where they can learn off of a video, sort of those concepts, have different practices. And then when we get, they get on their feet, I will have that time to go around and help them through the material. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. I think that it's a common misconception in all modern classrooms classes that we just sit our kids in front of computers and have them watch videos for the whole time, which is definitely not true. I I think that like the the solution to that is to restrict the videos to only the direct instruction, but I I love also that you have movement time before you even get to the video. Like it's a dance class, you know? I love that. Yes. And that's my thing. When you come into the classroom, let's like first thing get up on your feet and move. You know, whatever classes you're coming from, having that opportunity of like, now you're in this class, let's move together and then get into the lessons of the day. Awesome. Awesome. Catherine, how about you? How do you structure your class? Yeah. Um, I structure my class. If we're in person, my classes are pretty lab structured, kind of similar to what Karis was talking about, where it's like we've got different chunks of time devoted to different activities. And if I am teaching a new concept or a new skill, then I usually kind of get students into it with a bunch of low stakes, rapid fire kind of activities where it's like, okay, well, we're learning about this thing. Now, why don't you try this in this context? Okay, we're going to do that for five minutes. And then why don't you now try it in this other context, try that for five minutes. Uh, but when we're 
in a project uh, in which the students have a lot of choice and agency over the material, which is what I try to do as much as possible, we just will circle up and we'll do kind of an SEL community check-in at the beginning of every class. And then once that's done, the pacing tracker and the material that I have in Google Classroom allows the students to really choose what it is that they need to prioritize on any given day. And the flexibility of the space in my room, we don't have desks, we have some smaller kind of hexagonal tables that can move around, um, or kids will a lot of times just like sit on the floor. They will do what they need to do uh, with the space that they need to take up. And I think that that lab structure allows for a lot of student choice. It allows for students to workshop things for each other, or if I'm seeing kind of a common misconception then we'll workshop something all together as a whole group. Um, I should also mention that I have 85 minute blocks of time with my students in person. So like, that's really huge. Um, I love a block schedule because it allows us to chunk time within that time frame, And I, I feel that that gives me a lot of flexibility. Um, and, and that lab structure was there in my drama classes before modern classrooms, but it really crystallized once I started using things like the pacing tracker. And once I started organizing lessons in Google Classroom uh, with the Modern Classrooms project in mind. So I guess when I started using MCP, I used the instructional videos in class as intros to lessons, but it felt really weird to have a theater class where there were a bunch of students on headphones, kind of like sitting silently together, you know? And so now the way that I use them in in-person instruction is I will do that lecture in person. Like I will introduce uh, via a short kind of instructional lecture, whatever skill or concept we're talking about with the students. But then I also have that same material in a video attached to whatever lesson we're talking about so that if a student needs to, they can go back to that. Or if a student is absent, they can go back to that. Yeah, I love that. We're really putting that misconception to bed, right? <laughs> that kids are sitting in front of their computers. I like this a lot. Sam, how about you? Tell us about how you structure your class. Absolutely. It's really similar to both Karis and Catherine, where we all start together and we do a warm-up. Um, all students are based on their instrument in a classroom together. So I think a lot of band programs, especially at the high school level, it's all instruments in the whole band from flutes all the way down to tuba. But for middle school, it's really based on skills. So they start with just the flutes and clarinets together in a woodwinds class and just the brass together, trumpets and trombones. They meet 45 minutes every day. And um, like Catherine and, and Karis were saying, we start with a full group activity. And for us, that's a warm up. And they see the agenda on the board. They have a timer. So they come in, they get their instruments out. By the time the timer hits zero, we start our warm up together. And then they will either do their on-pace lesson or we'll review the on-pace lesson together, kind of like Catherine was saying too. We'll talk through the rehearsal goals. And the students know that Fridays are reserved for what we call full run Fridays that I think a lot of maybe choral programs, but I know a lot of band programs do. And it's motivating for kids to get to that Friday and put the pieces together, so to speak. One thing that has been new and a new challenge that I'm excited to talk about later is they move into individual or small group practice pods based on the chunk of music or the the pace um, that they're on, the lesson that, that they're on. And then 
like the beginning of class, we end class with a, a full group playing time. Maybe that's one chunk of music or it's one piece kind of as like a foreshadow to what we're going to do on Friday. I, I love also this theme of like the activity at the beginning of class coming across in all three of your classes. I feel like in your cases, it's very practical and like you're actually doing something, you're doing music, you're doing dance or theater. Uh, I don't think it necessarily has to be like that. Uh, an activity at the beginning of class to sort of center everybody is a great idea, whether or not it's a performing arts activity. I do that in my class. We just talk, this is sort of like what Catherine, what you were saying. We just talk about the lesson. Like I say, okay, today lesson three is on pace. And then lesson three, it's, this is the activity you're going to do. And I talk about it for a little bit. I take questions. You know, I call on certain students to do certain things. That's a great way to sort of center the class, especially at the younger grades, I find. Um, because older kids are able to kind of just walk into class and get started. But for my sixth grade classes, I definitely do that. I sort of call everyone's attention to the front of the room for just a couple minutes and, and talk about what the day is going to be like. So I think the biggest concern that I hear from performing arts teachers, and I think this is really the impetus for talking about this on this episode, um, because I've worked with a lot of performing arts teachers who tell me they don't really understand how to incorporate self-pacing in a performing arts class. And of course, self-pacing is one of like the three fundamental pillars of the model. The other two being blended learning or instructional videos and mastery-based assessment. But I've said this on the podcast a lot. I think that both of those really exist in service of the self-pacing, where we give the students the amount of time that they need to learn the stuff that we're asking them to learn and then demonstrate that they learned it, right? But, you know, if you imagine like a performance-based class, I, in my head, the first thing that comes into my head is like a group of children and a conductor standing over them, right? And they're all literally on the same page. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there's like some cognitive dissonance there when it comes to self-pacing. So I'm wondering how you manage and how you structure self-pacing in a class that really is built around group activities and coming together in a group to do a group performance. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. Um, and I guess I can kind of speak both from my experience as a choir teacher, but then also my experience as a drama teacher, it really depends on how you conceive of your role in the classroom. Because if you conceive of your role as a teacher as like the director, as in the person who directs all of your students' activities and you expect that everyone's going to be paced according to your will or your planning, then yeah, self-pacing is going to be tricky because if if the only pace that is appropriate is your pace, that doesn't leave room for your students to have agency over their experience. Um, what I found is that I was drawn to the Modern Classrooms Project because I was aiming towards a classroom in which my students don't need me. Um, when I'm able to kind of like take a breath and turn around and look at my classroom and see groups of students asking each other interesting questions about theater without me being involved, right? Like that's, that's my rainbow unicorn moment. I literally write myself a post-it. I put the date and the time in the class. I'm like, this is what my students were doing at this time. And I put it up on my wall because those are the moments that I love teaching. It's like, I've done my job well enough that my students are independent artists. And I'm literally getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. Like, that's how much I love it. And I found that 
that that self-pacing in, in drama class works really well because you have that kind of outer limit of the, of the project deadline. And then within that, you give your students all of this time and space to play in that sandbox and they create what they are able to create within that time. And obviously you are trying to get them towards a fully functioning, um, like clean, polished performance. And if you're trying to, you know, bring out a certain type of content or a certain skill, you're nudging them towards that. Um, but really it's allowing the students to be artists in and of themselves and, and make those creative decisions. So, you know, like I try to incorporate student leadership as much as possible, even going as far as talking about like the planning and structuring of the projects and performances themselves. So as much as possible, my students are not just reading scripts written by other people, but they are writing their own work um, and they are deciding on character choice and they are deciding on dramatic conventions within projects and things like that. So I think, yeah, if you if you are a teacher who's coming at working with your students from like a hierarchical kind of position where you are dictating their move, their their creative movements, self-pacing is going to be hard to conceive of, I guess. And that is much more of a challenge for a more traditional like music ensemble, like a choir or a band. And Sam, I guess I'm really interested to hear how you are incorporating modern classrooms and self-pacing in your environment. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, so all of the things you said, I uh, was just like, yes, 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 yes. And <laughs> you and you get it too. I know before we started recording, you were talking about um, being a student at um, St. Olaf, and I'm sure you were in the the chorus program there. And, you know, there's that, that director tradition. Talk about hierarchy, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And this modern classroom project really shatters that mold. And so you really do have to like reset your compass to looking at your perception of the music classroom or the fine arts classroom, the performing arts classroom. So it, it's hard to look at and not just show up and ask the students to follow at your own pace, which is what I started my teaching career as. But doing this project has allowed the students who want to work ahead and who already get the on-pace concepts, like in the music you're working on, if they're like, oh my gosh, I already get the notes and the rhythms and the articulations, let me work ahead. They get to work ahead. And the students who need extra support where they don't understand a new note or a concept, they get that extra support and time to do it. So in our classroom, that practice time has been a really unique challenge because of the noise level, of course. Um, So uh, that small group or individual working time has looked like separate zones in the classroom, working in a practice room, in the office, in the um, instrument locker storage area. And they have set times where they know exactly where to go. And of course, with middle school students, you have to practice getting there and just um, how that process works. Otherwise, it's, you know, kind of a free for all. So we had to spend a lot of time just practicing getting into those zones and taking turns practicing one at a time or airing and valving, like not playing their instruments, but moving their fingers or slides. um, So the noise level didn't get too crazy. So we definitely had to just set some, you know, parameters of how it's going to work with the noise level. But once we got through that, it was really cool to see kids in that mastery check time 
um, really succeed and work ahead and they could go at their own, their own pace. And once they pass something, I mean, I literally had a flute girl, like do the Napoleon dynamite, like, yes, like I, I got this one. This one was really hard. And to echo what Catherine was talking about too, there was a moment where I looked out and in my eighth grade woodwinds class, uh, the flutes were all sitting in a circle um, and they were counting each other in and they were practicing and it was just a picture perfect moment. It's like that sticky note moment where you have to write it down. Like they get to help each other. I don't even have to do a thing. They know their notes. They can help each other out. And it allows those students to take that ownership in the classroom that isn't usually there when you have that kind of director um, hierarchical um, tradition of the classroom. But just as a, a band classroom standpoint, 90% of the self-paced lessons are asking students to perform a specific skill or concept. So maybe that's a scale, maybe that's like a four measure chunk of music that's really important to them being successful in the whole entire piece of the, the concert. And I usually break down those chunks into, like I said, four bars or two bars or even one bar if it's like a really challenging concept. And then the other 10% is stuff about um, learning how to improvise rhythms or writing in a scale, you know, drawing in notes on a musical staff so they get that experience of how to improvise or compose as well. So the majority of it is, like I said, 90% is that, that skill-based students playing their instrument. Their instrument is to their face 90% of the time. So they practice all those concepts as much as possible. I had a another mentee that I worked with, also a band director, who said something that, that stuck with me over the summer. He said that if you are a professional musician playing in an orchestra, you have to be self-directed, right? Your, your conductor's not going to teach you your part. And exactly. so both of you, you're making excellent points, but I, I just remember that. And it's like, this is sort of a nice balance between, you know, we're teaching middle school students who are in school and a truly authentic experience of practicing and learning your part, right? Like... Uh, they, of course, do have the opportunity of working with you in that self-paced, independent work time. Um, but when they get to the rehearsal, either they've learned it or they haven't. And it's, you know, the the one part of the class that really is teacher-centered and, and teacher-directed, they've had a lot more opportunities to learn and they've had the time they need to learn because it's self-paced. I, I really like that. Karis, how about you? Yes. I mean, Catherine, Sam, I echo everything that you're saying and 100%. And I feel that in my class. And it's interesting because I kind of separated in where I feel my student ownership, say when they're working on a choreography project, or we're talking about how do you watch a piece of dance and talk about it? Or how do you connect to something you've seen in your community or your neighborhood that's happening that's using movement and dance. But I still kind of got separated when it came to specifically performance based like I, as the teacher, director, choreographer, am teaching you movement, you are learning it, and then you're going to perform it. And I think just as Sam and Catherine were talking about, it gets into that director role. And that's where the concept of self-pacing really helped me take a step back from it. Because when we do have those performance, I call them progress checkpoints. Um, when it is their big performance summative, that is a hard deadline. And it was before I started kind of bringing in modern classroom practices into my class. But what that self-paced did was allow me to look at what are all those building blocks that can be on a self-paced that aren't just my schedule, 
but that are all the steps that a student can do to practice, to then take ownership of that movement and to feel secure and confident to get to that performance. And then others who maybe are on pace or ahead of pace, how can they even explore further past just performing that dance work or that piece of material? And so stepping back and being like, I am not just the teacher that I want you to perform this, but like, what can I create for my students to come in at all different points and perform and feel confident and feel the agency to explore more on their own? It brings it so much further than just performing a dance. And right. that's really opened my eyes. Yeah, this is this is awesome. I, I love this. It's like it's a mindset shift, right? Maybe uh-huh. modern classrooms is not compatible with a traditional dance or music or, or drama class, but we want to change that status quo, right? Like we we're not trying to make it compatible. It's a mindset shift. I love that. I think one of the things that when I moved from choir, uh, which which when I was teaching Sam, I I kind of it, what you said resonated a lot when like the beginning of your career, you were teaching from a very like traditional sort of hierarchical ensemble mm-hmm. um, idea, because that's what we learn in a conservatory style program. You know what I mean? If you're at, at a more traditional music education program, that's the way you learn how to teach. But then moving into the drama classroom, I feel like drama and dance to a certain extent as well have have these more overt elements of like social justice or ideas of drama as like almost commentary, like social commentary. So you you create drama to respond to injustices that you see in the world or things that you think need changing, right? And you don't really see that same thing in a more traditional choral ensemble setting or more traditional like instrumental ensemble setting. Um, but one of the things that I've been really lucky to experience and read and write about in my master's program, shout out to University of St. Thomas, um, <laughs> is, is there's a ton of research out there, I'll speak specifically to choral music, about removing the hierarchy of the conductor from spaces of choral music while still keeping the spirit of the ensemble. Um, Juliet Hess specifically has a large body of work about decolonizing the choral classroom. And specifically, she wrote something a few years back called uh, something about like the docile chorister, which I found to be a very interesting read about kind of like how we we invent this role of docility uh, for our students. And then they buy into that. And then we wonder why we don't get like actively creative, critical thinking student artists. And I think, you know, it's just, it's very interesting to kind of dig into the structure of the class and the structure of the art form and how that, um, and when we start to question that, we can then come to some really interesting conclusions. Absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I threw that down in the show notes. So listeners, if you're curious, that'll be down in the show notes. Um, Let's, let's, uh, dive into some specifics here so we can talk about how you all make this happen. I'm curious what a, like a single self-paced lesson looks like. Uh, What sorts of things are you teaching your students? What direct instruction do you put into your instructional videos? And, um, you know, I'm also curious what the mastery checks in your classes look like, because, you know, 
if they're learning to play a passage on a flute or like they're learning to, uh, you know, dance a particular way or make a particular movement, you know, that's not something that they can write on a piece of paper and show you that they've mastered it. So what do these lessons look like and how do you check to make sure that the students actually learned uh, what you're teaching them? For my beginner students, they get that direct instruction where we're on pace and they also have videos and access to smart music where they can go in and practice or review the video and, and go over it on their own, whether it's in the classroom or at home. Um, as far as some more of the advanced students, when there's not just the four beginner instruments, there's a whole slew of instruments and way different um, variety of mastery checks. It's just going to show like in Canvas for our learning management system, for example, it just shows the chunk of music that they're working on or the scale that they're working on for that lesson. And um, they get that direct instruction from me or from another student who's been working on that. Um, so typically what students do for their mastery checks during the week, um, after we've done our full group warm up and before the end of the class where we play something together, they have time to work individually or in a practice pod, which is just a small group. And I will have a list of students that it's my goal to go around and work with or to go listen to. And then there's a, a set time where it's mastery check time. The students will go up to the front of the room at their own will if they're ready. And they'll write their name in a list order so I can see who's who's in order. And I'll go around with my computer with a spreadsheet of you know, where they're at um, with the lessons. And I'll count them in, listen to them, give them some feedback if they need to revise something. And if they need to revise it, they go and they erase their name up the, on the board. They practice some more. They add their name back up there when they're ready to um, get that mastery check experience again. And that has really allowed me to increase the pace. Like it's really fast feedback. And I find that I am like almost running around the classroom, listening to students, giving really quick feedback, like great job on this. Here's the one thing to revise. Um, give it 10 more minutes, you know, chunk it, loop it, slow it so you can get it. And then write your name back up there and you've got it mastered. And the kids have really liked that pace where they get to practice that specific skill. They show me when they're ready. I go and listen to them and then they master it or they revise it and they just keep moving forward with the unit. Students also can go into that learning management system as well. And I've got it set up where they can submit the assignment via uploading a video or recording right into Canvas. And for kids who want to just knock out a bunch of lessons at home, some of them do that. And then they get to go on to kind of like Catherine and Karis were talking about more social emotional or social justice things where they get to go to those aspire to do lessons. They get to practice, you know, all district auditions or all state audition um, material that otherwise they would have to do at home. So I, I really think about those high achieving kids. They get that extra time in the classroom to practice. And the kids who need that extra time just to get through the lessons, they get that extra time too. So it's dissolving. Again, it goes back to that like hierarchical. Uh, maestro director tradition and it just dissolves that and it really elevates all students wherever they're at in your program it elevates all of those students the high achievers the students who need more time and allows them to explore those corners of the the classroom and your content that they wouldn't otherwise get to explore it's kind of a lot to wrap your brain around especially with 
noisemakers in the classroom just to it's it kind of sounds like an orchestra warming up on stage with kids playing all the time Mm -hmm. but they really (laughs) they really get used to it and it's um echoing Catherine when she looked back and it was like that rainbows and unicorns moment where the kids are helping each other and they become the teacher and they take the ownership and you can still play that teacher role and add on to that feedback add on to the instruction that they're helping each other with. Um, It just creates this like very different ecosystem with the mastery checks where they get to um, really like run ahead at their own pace or really like sit and um, continue to develop those skills that they personally need time to develop in the classroom. Mm. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Karis, how about you? Uh, Tell us about like, a lesson, a mastery check. Absolutely. Um, so when I get into my sort of single self-paced lessons, you know, it may be looking at a specific concept. So how does a choreographer generate new ideas for a dance work? And then each sort of video lesson can look at a different approach. And then sort of the must-do, should-dos from that could be a Nearpod where they watch two different choreographers that use the same piece of music and how to compare and contrast them or have an idea based off of this. So there's sort of more of that watching practice and then it'll be a hands-on, get on your feet. Now use that strategy to create a movement. So if it is improvisation, record yourself improvising for 30 seconds and then watch it back and what stands out to you or whatever the practice may be so that there is a sort of watching guided notes that looking at in practice, watching, and then getting out and putting into practice for yourself. And that's where the progress checkpoint or the mastery check would come. And that will vary. That can be either performing for me on the side as everybody is on their self-pace at different places. It could be uh, uploading a video or using Flipgrid, or it could be more towards the end of that unit than like a group performance that they are working towards, which I still have open that if students have different anxieties or things like that and they need to perform for just me or they need to just do a video, that is always an option. Um, but looking at there's different types of performances that they can do, whether just for me, video or group when they are showing their work. Yeah, that's awesome. I think as as I was thinking about this question, my the thing that I expected people to say was that they would have students record videos, but you all have so many more options. <laughs> that's that's very cool, both of you. And and how about you, Catherine? So I would say for particular, for like, if we were talking about one self-paced lesson, I'll give an example of a high school unit that I just did recently that featured uh, the importance of being earnest. And the students had the the task of working with a partner on a partner scene from that play. And so we had gone through and we had read through the play as a whole. We had watched a performance, like a Broadway performance that was recorded and talked a little bit about the world of the play. And then what the students do to sort of activate their actor brain is they take character notes in their script And they think about what the objective of the character might be in this particular scene and then what tactics or actions that character might take to achieve that objective. And so if we're talking about a self-paced lesson on objectives and tactics, the must do for that lesson would be 
that the students actually write those notes in their script. They write the objective for their character at the top of the scene, and then they write tactics that are assigned to you know, each particular line that the character speaks or responses from the other characters, and they, they write those things in. And then I take a page from Zach Diamond's mastery check book and have them take a screenshot of like a particularly busy page from their script, we'll say. So like the best representation of tactics and objectives that they have in their script. And that would be their must do. Um, a should do then would be to perform a section for a classmate and that classmate is looking for those tactics. How does that student performer activate those tactics? Are those things working or do they not make sense? And then that student has the opportunity to make edits they can write further notes. They can further uh, solidify their performance. And then that aspire to do, I always see the aspire to do as being really an extension out of the script. So if the must do it has to do with the script itself and the should do has to do with actually testing what they wrote down, then the aspire to do would be applying information from what they know about the playwright or applying information that they know about the world of the play to that particular scene. So, okay, well, why is this character making such a choice? Uh, it's because of these different societal factors, or it's because of this particular historical idea. Um, and so the students have an opportunity to take that information that's related to the script and, and really bring it to bear in their performance. Um, so that's an example that I've got from my classroom. Awesome. I, I'm curious about the feedback from the peer. Is that like also a mastery check? Not a performance-based mastery check, but like a critique-based mastery check or something like that? Yeah, I will often use peer feedback as like a should-do or an aspire-to-do mastery check because I feel that, especially after... Being online for so long, it took my students a while to get used to collaborating actively with their peers. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it was like they were they were also used to being in their own personal kind of like private spaces after online learning. That I had to actually build that in to my lessons because the students would not seek out feedback or they wouldn't ask each other questions. They wouldn't work together kind of spontaneously. So yeah, I, I will often use that as, as a mastery check. I, I'm curious about distance learning, actually. I feel like uh, obviously distance learning and distance teaching has been a challenge for everyone in the world, but our classes being so practice-based, you know, practical, like movement, uh, music, right? These things that we do actually in groups together. Um, I'd love to hear you all comment on how distance learning went for you and what strategies you used to bring these very practical in-person based activities online. Yeah. So for myself, I feel like the distance remote learning and then moving into hybrid is what really opened the door to modern classroom projects for me because my brain was already having to start going in that direction. Like we were no longer in the classroom having that chance to move together or to learn together. So how can I reach these same standards? How can they have the same experiences all being in different places? 
Um, and then just even looking equity wise, you know, when we moved to like Google Meets and not everyone's internet worked or they weren't in a place that they could get up and dance. So how could I bring that experience to still be part of our, that are very important as part of our class. And so that's when I really started making the instructional videos. And even if it was something that I was teaching in that Google Meet, making sure that I still had a shorter video that gave that information, whether it was teaching a step or a concept, and then really open that door of besides just us moving, what other ways can we experience um, these same concepts or to think about them or to play and create around with them besides just up on our feet. And so that distance learning as difficult as it was <laughs> coming in as a dance teacher and trying to figure out how to do it, it, it did bring where I was able to see for some students what really worked for them that didn't work in the classroom, that they were succeeding with, that they weren't having those same yeah. successes in the classroom. And that was a lesson for me to look at that and how can I bring those moments into our class even when we are all back together. That's Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Catherine, how about you? You sort of already touched on this, but any other thoughts? Well, I, I mean, you really have to kind of pivot to and, and figure out like what kind of what kind of performance opportunities, if you're thinking performance, what kind of opportunities are going to be the most possible with whatever tech you have going on and what's going to be the most rewarding, right? So if you're trying to do something that's highly collaborative, but you've got a lot of internet issues or issues with accessibility or connection, you're probably going to end up frustrated, right? So I, I pivoted a lot to solo and recorded performances so that we didn't have to deal with connection issues on Zoom. I went to analysis projects, design projects. What about lighting? You have to get your lighting right when you're doing a video performance. Let's talk about framing. Let's talk about finding a good background for your performance. How are you going? How close are you going to be to your camera? Um, do you want to emphasize uh, physical movement or emotional movement in your face during your performance? And um, at one point, I had my students make a like pandemic. They wrote and then performed solo quarantine journals. So they like created wow. a character and figured out, okay, well, why would this person be in quarantine? Like, what's the, what, like, how did they end up in quarantine? Who are they? Like, what are they frustrated about? What are they relieved about when they're like stuck by themselves for two weeks, you know? And then they recorded these journals um, as performances. And that was really cool, really topical. Um, and it allowed them to get that creative outlet without having to worry about collaborating directly with other people in the zoom rooms and stuff, which I think can be really awkward for kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's very creative the way you kind of integrated them all together. And mm -hmm. it's not just pivoting. It's like sort of like a new curriculum based on the new reality, right? That's, that's very cool. Sam, how about you? Definitely asked uh, like this whole situation asked us to be creative and come up with some new things for the students to do, which gave them the background on things of how and why things um, are the way they are in music or like the history of things or um, how they could collaborate differently. I guess the most like applicable thing now that I've used um, from redesigning things is the pre-recorded lesson videos that I had to make for students, especially the beginners. So I would make a lesson video on 
you know, their first note or how to get your first sound out. And I can still use those videos now for students to practice at home. So it's like they get to rewind and watch it again and practice along with me. And even for students in, you know, advanced band playing over the break on clarinet or playing a new scale or chromatic scale, they get to review those concepts at their own pace. So I've loved going back and like seeing all the videos that I had to create and going, okay, I'm just going to plop those in for this unit here this year. And I know I'm going to use these for the next five years. And it, as a music teacher, as a performing arts teacher, that gives me a lot of peace of mind looking ahead to how I program things. And I just have like less stress looking into the future going, I know I'm going to use these same videos and these same concepts and I've created them and they're already done. So <laughs> it feels yeah. good as far as that goes. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the more, one of the more sort of selfish benefits of using instructional videos. To <laughs> yes. that after a couple of years, you just have them. And uh, it's, oh, yeah. it's nice. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I guess to close out this discussion, which is, is has been amazing, <laughs> um, I'd like to sort of talk about the most final of final products that we have in our classes, which is the performances that we're sort of building towards. Um, it's sort of the end goal of these classes, right, is to put on a performance. They're called performing arts. And so I guess this is sort of our version of like high stakes testing, right? Like it's the, it's very much a deadline. You have to be ready by it. All the work and prep that we've done builds toward it. And so I'm wondering after having now worked in an MCP for a little bit, if you feel like your students are ready for these big performances, um, talk to me about your, your final performances that you put on your big performances and, and how they're going for you. This is my favorite question because I just look at the performance date and I get really excited and there's a lot of hype around it and sometimes a lot of stress around it, I think, for us performing arts teachers. I think a lot about one of my colleagues and mentors back in Minnesota, and he always said, make them play as much as possible in the classroom. There should be like no downtime. Get the horns to the face and give them that experience every day, like in every moment. So switching from that idea to now they do it on their own was really intimidating and it shifted the ownership so much that it made me really nervous to try this out but we just had our first concert last week uh, on tuesday and it was a success thank yes, you congratulations <laughs> thank you wow. first live concert in a year and a half and the kids the kids did a stellar job and we got off the stage and then the high school band went out and the kids had smiles on their faces. The principal was like, wow, great concert. This is awesome. And, and I, I just had to be honest, like little faith that it would actually work <laughs> with like the self pacing stuff. But basically what I handed to the students on the first day was this um, kind of game board that I think a lot of other teachers would use in like a core class. And at the very end of the game board, it gave them the finish line, which was their concert date. And then the roadmap or game board gave all the little um, lessons that they had to, or, you know, were asked to complete along the way. And that way the students could really see, okay, I'm on pace. I need to be done with this chunk and this chunk and this chunk of music in order to be successful at the concert. And it really 
kind of, I don't know if demystified is the right word, but took away the question mark of how am I doing in order to be successful at the concert? So the students knew as they completed those, they could see their progress visually and know, okay, I'm getting really close to the concert or I'm already ready for the concert and it's been two weeks. Like put me in, you know, I'm ready to go perform. And then the other thing I'll say too is the first full run Friday we had after the students got to do their you know, own self-paced small group or individual or mastery checks, it was like a big celebration for us to come together for the first time in a rehearsal. It made that rehearsal setting, like that traditional rehearsal setting, so much more fun and like a, a peak to the week, so to speak. Like they got to that Friday and they had learned their parts enough where we just got to make music and they didn't have to start and stop and listen to the instructor like give feedback and then start again and then stop again. It was just, it allowed it to be fun on Fridays and it allowed the concert to just kind of breathe and they knew their parts. So I would say it worked and yeah, <laughs> and um, it was just fun. So I'm excited for, except for the next concerts and to see how we can continue to kind of fine tune some of the modern classroom project things for them to keep getting better. Yeah, that that really is very cool. I think I think I hear this from a lot of teachers where it's like there is that anxiety of not being ready for whatever big thing is coming up because it's self-paced and I think that that I you'll I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that in most cases that comes from sort of uh uh fear of giving up control over the class, right? Like oh, I think yeah. that yes. Oh, yeah. the, the misunderstanding that a lot of teachers bring to this topic is that like, if I'm not teaching every lesson every day, they're not mm -hmm. learning it. But, right. yeah. but the, the flip side of that coin is like, you can stand up and teach every lesson, but it doesn't mean that the kids did learn it, right? Like they might not be with you. They might actually be stuck exactly. on measure three and you've gotten to measure 45 of the piece. And so this way, you know, the worst case scenario is that they're still stuck on measure three, but you have the, the data, the pacing tracker to see, right? And you can intervene before the concert. And Exactly. Well, and can I, Sam, do you think, it sounds like from what you were saying, you were saying that you could just like let the performance breathe and that you were actually making music, which is really the goal for any ensemble-based conductor teaching at like the middle school, high school level, right? Is to get your kids out of the written music or however you're learning it, if you're learning it by ear or you're learning it on the page and to really become an ensemble and to really make that music and be in the moment because, and, and like, that's like any ensemble teacher's goal. And when your kids are self-pacing the fundamentals and you're able to give that feedback, then all of a sudden it frees up time on those full run Fridays for all of you to get together and talk about the fun music stuff, which is beyond the fundamentals. Exactly. Exactly. What about you, Karis? Yeah. I mean, I haven't had any performances right now, so I'm wondering. But yeah, I mean, I can just say, Sam, echoing on what you were saying, I feel like that self-paced tracker, that roadmap, that game board, when we are getting ready for a performance and students seeing all of those individual steps that they took to get ready for the performance and for ourselves, like even though it may feel and look different, that we had those checkpoints along the way for each of our students individually to see how they were doing and being able to give them that support and feedback that all builds to that rich final performance. 
that maybe isn't let's all play as much music all together at the same time. Let's all the whole class be up on our feet moving together at the same time. It's flushing all of that back to give the students that self-paced for them to prepare themselves then prepare themselves maybe in a small group. And then we come together as the ensemble that just enriches that performance. And again, takes it a little out of our hands and looks at what the students create as the ensemble on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me, the pacing tracker, when we're talking specifically modern classrooms, the pacing tracker has been a game changer from on the student side, because yeah, like you were saying, Sam and Karis, it really demystifies the process for them. They're not kind of like waiting for the curtain to be unveiled for the next step. Like they can see the whole journey ahead of them and then they can understand their place in it. They They have better context. But it's also made me a much better planner myself as a teacher Mm -hmm. um, because Mm -hmm. the modern classrooms model is really just this like amped up version of backwards design. Um, And so it has made me a much better planner and I can I can pace. I understand how I can get the kids from point A to point B um, Mm -hmm. in a much more granular way. And I think it also two two things. Firstly, a lot of my students at this point, because we've been using the model for like a year and a half now, a lot of my students are starting to understand that my place in their performance prep is very minimal. I can give them feedback. I can give them a little bit of direction. But in the end, the the hard work, the grunt work, the rehearsal has to come from them. And if they don't put in the time, they're not going to see the results. And that has very little to do with me in the end. Um, And it has a lot to do with their motivation, be it intrinsic or extrinsic. And so it's really made transparent the fact that like I can be there as a guide and I can like give them a timeline and a deadline. But if they don't put in the effort, they're not going to see the results they want to see. And so I've been seeing a lot more critical thinking. I've been hearing a lot more interesting questions coming from my students, not just am I done Mm -hmm. or is this good enough? (laughs) But yeah, yep. <laughs> I think it's funny that we're all laughing because we've all had that exact same experience. I always tell my students, like, don't ask me, ask, don't ask me if it's good. You have ears, like, listen to it. You know, like, yes. yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I just, I just really feel that um, my students, yeah, they're they're doing a lot more critical thinking in my classes as a result of the self pacing. Like, they don't have to get navigation from me. When I already give them the map and they see the whole journey, then they can start to ask questions about the art. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think has been the most valuable thing. And I'm, yeah, never going back. Yeah. You kind of get the class aspect of it out of the way and, and focus on the, on the real thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, that was quite a discussion. I, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot and I want to thank all three of you for joining me today. We are out of time. But thank you so much to all three of you, Karis, Catherine, and Sam. It has been an absolute pleasure talking about this. And this we're, we're talking my language here. So this is, you know, I'm not surprised I had so much fun, but I thought it was a really great discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And there are some cool resources down in the show notes. Uh, so listeners do go ahead and check those out. You can find them at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 62. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project.